This is the intro song for the Never Daily podcast that we do called The Hugs Podcast. Let's start by taking a deep breath of something, preferably air. And as the emotional, pensive guitar music comes in, let all of your worries go. Take another deep breath and prepare yourself for this episode. It might suck. Or... It might free your earballs to soar with the beagles. This is the Hugs Podcast. Welcome again to the most riveting show you've ever experienced that has to do with hugs. This is the special Hugs Reach Around the World edition, where we cover stories from around the world, wherever they may be, including our own places and towns where we live, because those are technically in the world too. You never know where we're going to land. Imagine a fight between Carmen San Diego and Dora and that's like the stories that we bring on Reach Around the World edition. I'm having a rough time figuring out hugs. I don't <laughs> understand what we're trying to do here. I thought we were trying to make people feel like they need a hug for so long, but we had a long conversation, the operator and I, and I think I get it now. Although it might not be clear on the script that I've currently got with me today, but you know, next time. What, what I was going to say, and you had you had messaged me earlier today, and I had failed to respond, Um but what what I I got to be honest, what I really like here is Jack. You said something a couple days ago that that has kind of stuck with me. You said honestly, I don't see a likelihood of anybody wanting to listen to three guys tell three stories that are just positive. <laughs> and and I said in my head mind at that point, I said you know. <laughs> There's probably something to that. But that's what I think is really cool. And the reason why like, I, we blabber about us being 1159 media is because there is a culture, I think, that's happening with 1159 media. I think what we bring to the microphone, what our communities are about and everything. And um, like the fact that we can't walk a straight line. Like none, no three of us can. No three. I love that, actually. Yeah, I don't know how you feel, Kent, but as hard as I try to do a positive thing, I always end up needing to be dark. And it's the same in my life. If somebody's having a really serious conversation, I get the sense that you guys struggle with this as well, maybe socially, although I've never met you in real life. I, just from what I can tell here, we're all very similar in that we like to like just kill seriousness with a joke, oh, like yeah. deflate the whole thing if it gets too serious with a joke. And I go overboard with that constantly where I got my girl like kicking me in the or punching me in the ribs, yeah. you know, all the time. Like just relax. Try to be normal for 15 minutes, please. Yeah, I do it at funerals. <laughs> yeah. I can't even be around a funeral without cracking a joke. I, there's just something about having to be an adult and be serious that I, I can't get with. But my comedy club is ho uh, hospitals. Like I, I can't keep it. Uh, like um, the, the, uh, in the hospitals here, at least there's a pain chart on the wall that says, how's your pain today? 
And then they whiteboard like what you say. Like if you're laying in the bed and they're like, what's your pain level at, son? And they're like, probably a seven. They write seven for some, like they're, like they're accomplishing something by doing that. I erased the seven and then I wrote like, how about none? That's a good idea. You know, I just, I can't, and I don't take anything seriously that the doctors say. I make jokes about everything. And yes, it is. It's all veiled to, uh, to veil social awkwardness. And when it comes to trying to do a completely positive podcast, my reaction to that as when it's some, something's too serious and you want to make a joke like we all are, when something's trying to be too positive, I go ultra negative Yeah, to, to just kind of... Like, I don't know, man. Just be a pain in the ass, I guess. I mean, you could tell from episode three of Hugs, I brought a story that was as brutal as we would talk about on Brutal. I did a dark topic just recently that was half as brutal <laughs> as the one that I brought up on Hugs. And afterwards, I'm ta- listening, talking to myself about it. I'm like, why did I do that? <laughs> it's the nonconformist in you. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. I guess it is. You're always talking yeah. about behind the scenes, you know, when we're not about My Chemical Romance and Green Day and <laughs> Good Charlotte. And I've never. <laughs> uh, Jack has never. never talked about any of those bands. I'll, I'll <laughs> so if you were to go, just for the listener, if you were to go to like one of these big podcast factory companies like Wondery or something like that, <clears throat> before anybody ever hits record on a microphone, that thing, that show, that potential show, prospective show, <clears throat> has passed through, I don't know, what do you think, 15, 20 hands, 15, 20 employees that are never going to be recorded on the show. They're marketing executives or they're, or they're copywriters or researchers or, you know, producers. Um, and, and that costs a lot of money. <laughs> and so the way we do it mm-hmm. is we like, hey, here's a ham-fisted idea for a podcast. We're like, okay, let's hit record. <laughs> And then we see how it goes. Yeah. I don't know if I ever told you guys, but when I was working with Mike Boudet, he put me in touch with Wondery, and he told Wondery that I would be a good, I would be a good podcaster, a good show for Wondery. So I was in a meeting with Wondery to have Dark Topic be a Wondery show. And after the meeting, I thought it went well, my, and I didn't hear anything. And I asked Mike, and Mike goes, "Well, Jack." The problem is, is that they think that you're too unpredictable. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, you said some things in the interview that worried them. I'm like, I, I don't even remember what I said in the interview. Like, but I was just cracking jokes or whatever, just being. And when they listened to my podcast, it's like I could say anything at any given time. And they, it wasn't, I wasn't wondering material, and I really missed a shot. <laughs> Although I'm happy where I am now, way happier. Yeah. I think that's what probably is good about all three of us is they're unpredictable. You want to see unpredictable, read Kent's Facebook posts. Like, he he gets you all nice and comfortable. He's like, you know, having been in Afghanistan, based on today's current culture and climate, and then somehow he ends up kicking every single PC, non-PC conservative. Everyone gets a kick in the nuts. Everybody gets one. It's it's just, it feels... You know, it, it feels good to know yeah. if you're getting your, your 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 crotch kicked in by Kent, so is everybody else. And you leave the post feeling <laughs> both confused, elated, and and angry. Justified. <laughs> well, everybody, yeah, as far as I'm concerned these days, deserves a kick in the nuts. Yes. Because we have all <laughs> lost our minds. Everybody has the funny thing about the funny thing about what Kent does, though, and uh, I'm sure you see it, Kent, is that 
it looks like it's kind of a dangerous way to behave. Like, say you just crash on everybody on a Facebook post like that. But if you're not an idiot, you understand that that's the safest yeah. approach. Yeah. yeah. You haven't left any one group out in the open where they feel like personally attacked. It's like, oh, he attacked himself in that post, too. I mean, it's just, it's a brilliant way to go about it. Yeah. I think it starts becoming, you know, uh, I think at a point, people could start accusing you of being this or that or whatever ism or, you know, phobe, whatever, when you start avoiding certain groups of people or what that's when it becomes, I think, offensive. When you don't make fun of a certain group, Trey Parker and Matt Stone did the same thing with South, with South Park. Mm. Well, that, I that was, personally I enjoyed your recent post on the Afghan war. I didn't even know one. I didn't know really that there was a war happening there. I didn't know what you were talking about when you said Afghan war. So I YouTubed it, and instantly I was like, "Oh, he's talking about the Afghan war between Beatrice and Lorraine." And who gets the top spot at the flea market to sell their quilts? That was a riveting video. And I thought, okay, I see where Kent... Right. I, I, this is a charged topic, and I can see why Kent is addressing it here on the Facebook. Right. And, I mean, that that's a common misconception. Uh, but I was actually in that. I was talking about the one where we were in Afghanistan for 20 years. and We were making quilts in Afghanistan for 20 years? Um, what about all the children here that need I mean, quilts, we were, really? We were definitely putting yeah. quilts up for sale because the owner didn't need them anymore. <laughs> See, that's the way America works. We're giving. We we find, we repurpose, right? That's a, We're a very recycling kind of culture. Hey, okay. Once again, see, I'm on, on track. I'm, I'm on the same page with you, brother. Well, should we, should we get started? Absolutely. All right. So if anyone's ready... Uh, you know, some people say, hey, I got to do an ad. So if you want to skip the next 30 seconds, Jack's up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is our very first uh, Hugs Reach Around. And what a Hugs Reach Around is a reach around the world. We're going to be talking about places other than what we would classically talk about. Usually it's North America. Sometimes it's the UK. Sometimes it's Australia. But very rarely do we go to places like where I'm going to go right now. And very rarely will you hear somebody go to places in the way that I talk about this place right now. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous. So where I'm going to head today for this reach around is Croatia. And uh, I'm just going to get right into it, boys. I am very nervous about this because I did not pull any punches about how I feel about Croatia people that I've met in my life. And again, I think I've missed the point of hugs, but I'm going to give it my best shot here. All right, so for this reach around, we're off to Croatia. Uh, Croatia is famous for a few things that may surprise you, like its Dalmatians. Croatia was said to be the uh, birthplace of this unique breed. One of the dumbest breeds, too, apparently, because um, they, you know, they're all so inbred. Not the Croatians are. Excuse me, I got a frog in my throat all of a sudden. Maybe it's Jesus telling you to redirect. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Ah, <laughs> uh, and uh, what else are they famous for? Croatia is said to be the birthplace um, of Nikola's Tesla. Uh, is he is he related to Nikola Tesla? Oh, is that? <laughs> I'm just uh, <laughs> old Saint Nicholas Tesla. <laughs> uh, Nikola Tesla. I just learned that culinarily. 
They're known for their black risotto, a dish made with cuttlefish and squid ink that will leave your teeth black, which I find charming when people's teeth are always black. Uh, Nikola Tesla, he had black teeth, uh, not from risotto, but from electrocuting himself and never eating. A waste of time eating is what Tesla believed. Uh, What else? Like, I'm sure I'm missing a lot. They have beaches. They have beaches and they have islands. A lot of people might not be aware of that. Croatia is a tourist hotspot of Europe, in fact. Something that surprised me. Over 700 islands. um, And it's difficult for me to picture Croatians in the same way I do, say, like Caribbean people, Hawaiians, when they greet you onto their islands. You know, seeing as how every Croatian I've ever met has been rude, abrupt, and just really unfriendly and not nice, if I'm being perfectly honest. And this is where it starts to fall apart, boys. But hang, hang with me. I try my best here. The Croatians I met have been a little rough around the edges, let's say. Not all. I'm sure I've, you know, like I've read that there are generous people very they are very generous people and of course it should go without saying that you can't judge an entire country based on the fact that you personally may be batting a thousand when it comes to negative interactions with a particular people but in my experience with croatians 87 percent of the time they're a little racist a little homophobic a little stuck up nosy and just overly poorly mannered but of course my experience comes from and this is very important it comes from construction sites and street interactions. And this is drug dealing. Like, so please don't take my word for it. And to be fair, I feel like the reason I've had bad luck with Croatians and Russians too is because I can come off as as too friendly when I meet people for the first time. I'm a very insecure person, or at least I was. I still am. I think we all are, I'm sure. But I, I was a very insecure person when I was dealing with Croatians. And I think that they took it as me, like phoniness or me trying to put one over on them because... A lot of Croatians are very tough because of their background, and they weren't – I don't think they were used to a kid like the way that I was. And and the sense I always got was that they just thought that I was being phony with them, and they hated me immediately, and, and I hated them just the same. Croatia, again, it's where I decided to take us today, to meet a man <laughs> named Frain Salak, a man widely known in Croatia, infamous for being the unluckiest man on the planet though I don't believe a word that's ever come from his crooked mouth I've written here, and I can't put that through with the vitriol I had when I was writing it, but uh, this is rough, man, and I'm, I'm joking around. I know some of what I said cuts a little close to home, but it's not my fault that what I'm saying is, like, true. So, Croatia was a bad choice, guys. I'm sorry. I've been, you know, like I said, treated poorly by Russians and Croatia my entire life, and I'm trying to get in the spirit here, but what you're hearing is the best I got when it comes to Croatians. I know I'll meet a great one soon and it'll turn me around. In fact, because of this realization that I have deep-seated prejudice against Croatians, I'm going to actively try and meet a good one. I actually did. I'll bring this up in a second. To diffuse all of this negative energy I've apparently accumulated, uh, ground it like the great uh, Nikola Tesla. This means I'll have to uh, navigate puppy mills and sardonic black stained smiles, people screaming into two cell phones while they attempt to butt in front of me at the bakery, but I'm going to give it a shot. And uh, I'll keep you posted on that. Guys, after I had written this, I just yesterday uh, met met a a woman at a a Croatian bakery. I wasn't feeling good about what I'd written, so I intentionally went out and had interaction with some Croatians. There's a bakery in the city that I found, a Croatian bakery that I stopped into yesterday and bought some crostools. They're like mini pancakes. And I'm relieved and pleased to report that my interaction with the Croatian store owner was... A little stiff, awkward, overall not the best, as has always been my experience with Croatians. But anyways, 
Speaking of holding breath, let's get into the story. <laughs> I know the operator is holding his breath here. Baited. At the age of 32, my subject for this reach around, Frayne Salak, began writing his incredible story of being lucky in the unluckiest of situations. A train he was passenger on derailed and plummeted into a canyon, crashing into icy water. Seventeen people died, but Frayne managed to escape by exiting a busted window, then swimming with a broken arm to shore, where he was rescued and treated for his injuries, as well as hypothermia. He alleges this incident occurred in 1963, but there's no record of it, so, like, who knows? He probably made it up. Or if I'm being positive in the spirit of hugs, probably the Yugoslavian commie regime Croatia was absorbed at the time, kept the accident out of the papers to save face, like how China used the Wuhan coronavirus facility to douse the flames of the uh, people's hey, uprising. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, Jack? Yeah. Um, this is, uh, this is, I just want to remind you, this is the Hugs, the Hugs podcast. I'm sorry, man, I know. And, um, and we, we don't have any proof. Of we have zero evidence actually that's that's quantified with regard to what you're speaking of, and I just want to clarify just in case anyone right feels like they need to start commenting and being like, "Hey, Jack is right though." Yeah. Well, but okay, guys. Just to be fair, yeah, we only have Jack's word on this. We don't know the Croatian lady from the bakery. We don't know exactly what she said. We don't. It's all hearsay. So let's just... You're right. Okay, what were you saying? about Something about Wuhan? Well, I just said that the they have a coronavirus facility there called the Wuhan Coronavirus Facility. Yes, and, yes. And... Um, they do. They do. Pretty crazy how, I don't know, the city was uh, going up in flames and people were bucking <laughs> against the government. And I don't know how I got on to that, Kent. Um, really, I was talking about the Yugoslavian commie regime in Croatia at the time. Um, and they kept this accident on the papers to save face. I'm trying to give... Yeah, well, I'm talking about the Wuhan coronavirus <laughs> and how it was so convenient for the government. Okay, guys, I, I feel I feel like, you know, we are, we are we're expressing a lot of uh, fact, and some of these facts are heavy. Some of them are really heavy, and some of them are, like I said before, like I prefaced before, they are hearsay, Okay. I'm going to leave it to the intelligence mm. of each and every listener to determine which ones are facts and which ones are hearsay. Oh, you know what I want to do right now, though? I don't know if you guys listen to the intro song, but it's supposed to center us like a yoga class. So mm-hmm. I want you to do something with it. Let's hug it out. Come on. Come in. Come in close to your mics. Like what? Like through the computer monitor? Like do a... Bring your arms around. Now just pretend okay. like I am inside of your arms, uh. whispering... Warm words onto your cheekbones. Feels familiar. And Jack, I'm reaching you from a front. Reach around, reach around. No, no, no. Can't I'm bumping into you from the back, like on the bus? Mm, smell like macaroni and cheese. And the firm breath as I speak calming words. And now that we've gone over that, let's let's continue, Jack. Namastasia, namastasia. Okay, Okay. I actually feel a little bit better. That's the first hug I've had in a while. It was dusty and warm. All right. One year past this near-death experience, Frayne's mom got sick. He needed a quick flight to go see her, but the next plane going out of uh, 
Croatia to some other place. I don't know where. It was full. And Frayne somehow convinces the airline to let him sit in the back seat with one of the stewardesses. Probably slips a pack of smokes and a liter of fire water to the pilot. They they stuff a few additional stragglers in the overhead storage compartments as well. I made that up in the spirit of the whole story, the vibe here. Anyways, as they're landing, the rear door apparently flies open for some reason, sucking the stewardess beside Frayne out into a terrifying freefall. And Frayne soon follows up behind her. He is flying through the air at like 20,000 feet. He's coming down to the ground. The plane itself crashes into a mountain as a result. And Frayne, he lands in a haystack like a cartoon character. The stewardess maybe lands on like the lightning rod of a church or something. Personally, I got Frayne 0 for 2 here on believability. Of course, you know, like there's no record of this crash either. But again, this is the former Yugoslav where they kept track of things by yelling across a dinner table at each other, teeth covered in squid ink. <laughs> I'm sorry. Falling into a haystack at 200 miles an hour isn't going to slow you enough. Like, how big is a haystack? Falling into a traditional haystack from an airplane like a speeding bullet will leave you covered in hay, sure, but you'd likely also be javelin into the ground or crushed like a beer can, wearing your shoulders like shoes. Can can I give you a fun fact to know and share really Mm -hmm. quick? Can I give you a fun fact? Please. I don't know if you've ever been driving down the road and you see a bumper sticker on the back of a car that that all the bumper sticker says is 120 or 120 mph 120 miles per hour mm-hmm. that person is a skydiver because at a certain at a certain uh, velocity everything equals out so there's what's called terminal velocity the the human body and anything you drop from an airplane falls uh, obtains a speed of 120 miles an hour and maintains that speed mm-hmm. until something obstructs that speed like a haystack anyway like a haystack thank you man thank you because i i I exaggerated then at 200 uh, i was 120 i mean i'll ask you kent have you ever jumped into a haystack i I used to actually used to do it for fun as a child but that was out of the top of a barn we're not talking about from the cockpit of an airplane (laughs) my uh father-in-law jumped into a haystack from like i think it was like 20 feet and he fell right through and he broke his arm Ooh. So I don't know how big this haystack was, but apparently he survived from like 20,000 feet. Anyways, two years later in 1966, the now 35-year-old took his chances on a bus, which skidded off the road and into a river, of course. Frayne survived, but four others died. Also, of course, he made it through the rest of his 30s unscathed, but as his 40s began, so did a string of car calamities. He survived a plane, train, a bus, but now the cars were after him. And between 1970 and 1973, he survived two instances where his vehicle became disabled and he was forced to jump out before they exploded. In one of the stories, Frayne was forced over a cliff by a psychopathic truck driver. And as his car fell, Frayne jumped out and managed to grab a tree that was growing from the side of the cliff. His car exploded below, which is, seems to be a theme here, have things exploding once he jumps out of them, and Frayne held on until the Acme Corporation could send a flock of bluebirds over to lift him to safety. They needed quite a few birds as Frayne was so heavy on account of him being completely full of swear. Yeah. Anyways, it would be 22 years before Frayne Slack was hit by a bus in Zagreb. Uh, he was fine after this. <clears throat> Finally, in 2003, Frayne was rewarded for a life full of near-death experience. He allegedly won close to a million bucks in a lottery. 
When asked where the money was, he claimed to have given it all away. A hero to the end. And no proof of this either. Anyways, nothing Frayn Select went through can be substantiated. To me, he's an example of the old school where a man can fill his life with lies and get away with it. Today, with the internet and fact-checking, men and women like Frayn are a dying breed. His story is still widely believed in Croatia, and many worldwide are fascinated by its telling. They don't tell it like this, of course, but still. I hope you found uh, this story entertaining. I tried my best. I couldn't do it. I'm sorry, guys. Hugs. Okay. Um, that was pretty... That was better than last time. I mean, not as dark as last time. Thanks. You know, I, I mentioned, I believe, in one of the episodes, LeVar Burton Reads, and LeVar Burton naturally is from Reading Rainbow. And if you ever watched Reading Rainbow, Jack, actually, you, you, you said something uh, that they always say... They, at the end of their book reports, the kids always say, I recommend it. I've realized we can bucket your hugs stories as sort of it's it's a, like a reverse reading rainbow book report. Like you don't recommend it. And then you tell the story. And that's that's almost adorable in and of itself. So thank you. Oh, good. Okay. Well, thanks, man. That makes me feel better. This episode is going to be allowed to go to public. Yeah. That's one thing. I got another opportunity next time. And I'm going to come like full force, man, with the, with the positive. I'm going to figure this What's out. What's weird is Wondery called me the other day and they were like, hey, <laughs> there's this, you're doing a show. And then I was like, yeah, check it out. And they listened to three episodes and, and I, I haven't heard from them again. <laughs> My favorite thing about this story is how rough Jack was on the Croatians. But then he, like, <laughs> saved it at the end by not saving it at all and just ending, starting rough. The body there got a little rough, and then we ended rough, and we just all end with a bad taste of Croatian in our mouth. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, you know, the, the traditional story has what's called, like, a story arc, right? Story arc. Right. And uh, Jack's are sort of like a story bunt cake, where, like, the story circles the bunt cake and then just kind of ends up in the bunt hole. You know? Also, what I was trying to kind of do at the end there was, like, there wasn't a real train or plane or mm. car crash involved in the story. So I wanted to actually make one in reality through the story itself. The story is a train oh. crash. The story is a car Once crash. Once again. Do you guys know anybody like this in real life? Like Jack? No. Nobody. Just Jack. No. Like this liar. This, this big Croatian liar. Oh, yeah. Every Croatian I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, I think we're lucky that all the Croatians are stuck on islands at this point because, boy, <laughs> if there was a land bridge to Wachahachi, Canada, you'd be in trouble. Oh, they. Let me say something to kind of wrap that up and move on to Kent. My experience with Croatians has been negative, like I said, but I believe the reason why is because, you know, I'm. I'm for all the stuff that I've been through, I'm a pretty soft person. And when when I do meet people, I'm really friendly to them, overly friendly. And I kind of alluded to this in the story. And I think a lot of them coming from this communist regime in the past, a lot of them are really tough people and they've been through a lot. And when they meet somebody like me when they've come over to Canada and they meet me and I'm purebred Canadian kid and they see how jovial and friendly I am and all that, they just they think, who is this kid? You know, like, and they and they kind of crap all over me. So, in their defense, 
I don't know if I've defended them there, but I think I, I in there I'm, I understand why they would react to me in this way because they're just not used. They were not used to people like me when they when they came over. At least the people I met. Where do you live? Where you have so much interaction with Croatia? I've never met a Croatian. I don't think. Well, I live in, in Croatia. <laughs> no, <laughs> because <laughs> it's a melting pot, Canada. You know, the doors are wide open. And uh, there, there was just I, I worked with guys doing drywall. All Croatians, they hated me. They treated me like garbage. I don't. I'd never been mistreated so poorly in my life. When I worked in group homes, I worked with a couple of Russians and, and a Croatian. It was very negative. And then that bakery I went to the other day just to try to get pancakes. They were so kind of cold to me too. I was wearing a mask, which I think didn't help. And they didn't. I think a lot of people now, if you decide to wear a mask when you don't need to, because you don't need to out here now. I think that was part of it, too. I was the only one wearing a mask, and they're like, look at this pussy. I think that's kind of the deal that was going on right there. So I just think that they're tough people. Well, yeah, but if you're wearing a Richard Nixon mask, people are going <laughs> to yeah. treat you different. It's you know That's usually the, hey, give me all your money mask. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a poor choice of mask for me. It hasn't yeah, people were so picturing well. like a medical mask, and he was wearing the Babadook. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. I just don't like how people treat me. When I wear my Babadook mask around town. Because, yes, Jack, exactly. When I think of jovial, soft Canadians, I think Jack Luna. <laughs> I can see how that's off-putting to somebody. Yeah. Hey, I will say this. I, I do know a couple um, Croatians. And in in the States, where I frequent, the way we usually uh, generate dialogue or conversation is, hey, what do you do? That's an easy way in. Like, what, what do you do all day long? And then you can kind of start talking. If you do that with the Croatian, what I've found is every question that I'm used to asking to generate conversation is met with this response. Uh, it's, it's not important. Yeah. Exactly. Where are you from? Uh, not important. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Russians. You know, I found the same thing. They they think that you're after them in some way, and I think that has a lot to do with, like, you know, their history. They Show me your papers kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. All right, well, I'll hand it off to Kent now. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to try to get us into some lot here, and there's a lot of it in the story. So I'm calling this story, Everybody's Working for the Weekend. So, uh, Jack Op, what is, in your opinion, the worst day of the week? Is it Monday? I don't, yeah, I don't work a normal schedule anymore either, like you three. So I don't think if you're like me, you probably don't have a bad day of the week, right? I have one, and it's probably the opposite of the ops. Uh, I'll tell you quick. It's Sunday, and the and the reason why is because Sunday still has this overcast feel, even if it's super sunny to me. Like seeing my kids having to go to school, I get that feeling of Ugh, that you'd have when I have when I was a kid, knowing school's coming the next day. Sundays are always a little weird, unless football's on. Even then, when football starts to end, I'm like, ugh, there's just this kind of gross feeling to Sundays for me. Feel like you got to get in bed early, even though there's yeah. 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 I would agree with that's that would be my answer too. Mine would have to be I would have to go with short spoon day. You know, you've used up all your dishes and all that's left is the short spoon that's pretty much useless. You know? That's the day I just hate. wash your wash your dishes. Short spoon day. Yeah. Followed by probably shower day. Yeah. Hey, are you guys clean as you go, guys? Because I'm a huge clean as you go. We clean as we go. One more time. We clean as we go. And the left are clean. Like, I have a song, We Clean As We Go, that I sing to my family. You mean like project-wise? Like, if you do a day, if you eat, you clean as you go kind of thing? Is that what you mean? 
Yeah, man. Yeah, anything you do, you clean as you go. Like you see it, you pick it up, you put it away instead of it all piling up and you have to deal with it later. I'm a huge clean as you go guy. One more time, we clean as we go. In the just the ladies now clean as we go. Just the kids clean. So my wife is like that, and let me tell you something real quick. I had to she was my wife was bound and determined to get one of those monster like I don't know what you call them, sinks. A sink? So I bought one. It's got one bin instead of the two small bins. It's got one big, deep bin, right? You could take a bath in this thing. Mm. It's huge. And then, uh, I guess about two months ago, our washer, our dishwasher broke. And I was going to go to Lowe's and get a new one. And she said, no, 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 I don't want a dishwasher. And I was like, well, I do want a dishwasher. And, you know, because I am the man of the house um, (laughs) and I wanted the dishwasher, we ended up not getting the dishwasher. We ended up not getting a new one. (laughs) And... Because she said, no, we're going to do the dishes by hand because I don't even like dishwashers because they don't clean the dishes like they should. Oh. And she will die on that mountain. So we just didn't replace the dishwasher because she wanted to wash them by hand. And she's one of those clean-as-you-go people that, that Jack is talking about. Here's the thing that, that, that really grinds my gears. <laughs> I purchased this large, semi-expensive sink that is meant to hold dishes, dirty dishes. She gets so mad. There's a dish in there. So why did I buy the sink? Why do we now have this swimming Olympic swimming pool size sink and there's not allowed to be one dirty dish in there? <laughs> have I seen one of your micro yeah. children bathing in that sink? Have I seen you have. I've seen it. Yes, they love they love taking baths I in it. I was gonna say that's a big sink. It's very deep. Yeah. Jack, I'm I'm actually sort of at this very moment relieved you and I haven't met yet because let me just put it this way. I buy sticky notes to use them and stick them on stuff. Uh, So the inside of my studio oftentimes looks like a terrible case of smallpox. And uh, I don't even know what's on half of the notes. Let me just read one here. Where where, I've seen, I've seen your studio. That wouldn't drive me crazy, but see, I come from a long period of time where I live with other guys, not, you know, Uh I just friends Mm -hmm. of mine. Okay. And I know you both perked up when I yep. said that, but no, no, not like that. Although there would be times where I walk past a friend's room and he would try to like strangle me with his underwear and drag me into his room and pretend to yeah. do things to me and stuff. But like I lived, I lived in a house <clears throat> where these guys would never clean up after themselves, and I always end up doing the dishes. So when I got into a more domesticated lifestyle with my family, I'm like, guys, can we please just clean as we go? Like I just, I know, I remember thinking when I was like twenty. Oh my God! The dishes are never going to stop through my whole life unless I find something way to to navigate this and clean as you go. Keep always keep a clean sponge, and then there's a dirtier sponge to wipe the stuff off, and then you use the cleaner sponge. There's two sponges, and then you just clean it as you go, and it's it's easier for everybody. That's just been my thing. Then you get the treats in the drain all at one time. I've seen that a post on one of the Facebook pages where it's like the forbidden treats. It's all like with a lot of corn and stuff. Chunks of corn and meat and noodles and little pieces of gray snack. There's always an yeah. onion, even though you didn't eat onions. Yeah. <laughs> Jack, I'm going to change your life really quick. Look up. This will blow your mind. I kid you not. Look up Norwex cloths. Norwex. They make okay. a they make a cloth. They make cloths or fabric. These fabric cloths that are imbued with silver oxides, so you don't have to use. Uh, soap with them actually it'll ruin the cloth if you use soap and they have natural antimicrobial uh attributes it sounds like hoo-ha but they're like legit it's legit 
Check that out. It'll change your world. Also, we call my wife the Roomba. Uh, one time my brother and I were going to go hunting. He drove up him from Utah in his truck, new Ford F-150. For all you Chevy guys out there, pew, pew. Uh, he showed up the night before. And so we got all ready and we got everything packed. We threw all the stuff that we might take into the den. And then we organized our hunting packs and like the, the bins that we were going to take. It's an ordeal. Anyway, throughout the night, the area where we were going to go got like four feet of snow. That includes like the roads that you would be driving. And I'm an idiot. And I'm like, oh, we'll still make it. We'll see how far we can get. You know, we'll see if we make it up the mountain. Maybe we'll slide off. Who knows? But it'll be an adventure any way you look at it. And um, by the next morning, my wife was like, no. Uh, to the point where my super hunter brother-in-law, Travis, was like, I'm out. And I was like, wow, <laughs> watch you miss this successful trip. <laughs> and so he, he, he bowed out. So my brother and I, who are super big idiots, were like, no, we're still going to go. So we, we, load the, we load the truck up with all the hunting gear, all, the, all of our packs and everything, load his truck to the gills. We go to get in it. He can't find his keys. Can't find them anywhere. We spent like two hours looking before we committed to pull everything out of the truck and go through every pocket and bag and sack and zipper. Could not find the keys. And he's like, "Well, let's go back and let's go back in the room where we put everything together. Maybe they're maybe they're in there." And so we walked back into the house. And at this point, my wife had left, and we noticed like everything was clean throughout the house, which means my wife has been there. And we walked into the room, and it was like a scene out of a horror movie. We walk into this den, and he goes, has she been here? <laughs> and it was like we were both worried that she had gotten there because she would have cleaned. To this day, we never have found those keys. We've moved twice, and we never found his truck keys. He had to order new keys for his truck. Ugh. Either that was my wife saying I shouldn't go on the trip, or the Lord miraculously disappeared a set of keys. And then when we die, we're going to show up to the pearly gates and he's just going to be jingling the keys in front of us like, remember these guys? <laughs> I took them because he would have died on that trip, you idiots. Go to hell. Tongue yeah. slipping out because he's a lizard. <laughs> anyway, I think I hijacked your story there. You're, you're good. You're good. This is good stuff. Today, for my story, everybody's working for the weekend. We're going to follow the adventure of a young man by the name of Sutnomu. Yamaguchi. And you're probably thinking, oh, I love Mexico. <laughs> but you would be wrong. That's Japan. We're going to Japan. <laughs> so we're traveling to Japan. Our young man is named Tsutobu Yamaguchi, and he was born on the Kyusha Island of Japan on March 16, 1916. He had a, a pretty normal Japanese upbringing, doing... Japanese things and just being Japanese and eating food and walking to places and doing Japanese work and whatnot. Just all that, all that normal stuff, normal upbringing. But in the 1930s, he gets a job with Mitsubishi Heavy Industries as a draftsman designing oil tankers on the Kyusha Island, which was, you know, his home turf. Now, oil tankers are these like massive ships that carry oil. I don't know if you know those, the ones that. Mm. The ones that about 10,000 sea turtles, seagulls, dolphins, and whales are well aware of at one point or another in history. Um, you've seen the seagulls in the arms of the angel. There's like a seagull covered in ocean geese. Where? Is. Yeah. 
I don't even know how. Trying to wash it with a toothbrush. What? What's that? How do I? How do I censor ocean gin? Swear? Is do I? How do I? You don't have to. That's that's the uh, that's what scientists call uh, ocean oil. I feel like I have have to. So he designed those tankers that carry you know these massive quantities of crude oil. Even though he's designing these tankers, it's not Yamaguchi's fault. He's just a family man. He's trying to take care of his loved ones. I can't stress this enough. This is a good man. This is a good man. He's good family man. Good. Good family man and raising his kids and working hard. And, uh, you know, at some point there in the 1930s, he also meets a young lady by the name of Hasaka. And they get married. By mid-August of 1945, uh, Yamaguchi, at this point, you know, he is uh, 29 years old. He's a valued member of the company that he now has worked for for some time. Designing ships that move all of the earth juice and his wife, Hasako, has given birth to a cute little bouncing baby boy by the name of Katsutoshi. And all this is right with the world here in this, this, little, this little town on the Kyusha Island of Japan. Now on Monday, it's a Monday. Mondays are the worst. August 6th, 1945, Yamaguchi on this day has been away for work for some time in the western portion of the island of Honshu. So he's on the island of Honshu now, not on his home island of Kyosha. So he's on... Gazuntite. I was about to say the same thing. Gazuntite. Yeah. Exactly, yes. He's on the island of Honshu, and he'd been there for about three months on a business trip on behalf of Mitsubishi. Now, this was to be his last day in the city. Uh, him and his colleagues, Akira Awanaga and Kanyu Yoshi Sato, had spent the summer there Working long hours designing a brand new oil tanker. Now, this was going to be an oil tank that was supposed to out-oil tank even the most uh, oily of oil tankers. It was it was a super oil tanker, and that's what he that's where he had been for the last three months on this place in Honshu for work. Like I said, it's supposed to be his last day there on this business trip, and Yamaguchi was super excited to get home to his wife Hasako and his small son Katsutoshi. He also was to report to work, so it's August 6th. He's supposed to report back to work on August 9th for his regular job. He was thrilled to get back to some normalcy, to see his his little his little young buck growing and throwing rocks and, you know, chasing seagulls or whatever whatever they do. I don't I don't know what I don't know what they do. Yeah. But. Now like I said, Yamaguchi had spent the last 3 months working on the on this western portion of the Honshu Island, but unfortunately Specifically, um, the name of this city he was working in was called Hiroshima. What? And the the date? Oh boy! Is August sixth, nineteen forty five. Now, on this date, at two forty five a.m., some thousand miles away on nineteen forty five, a B twenty nine bomber by the name of the Enola Gay Wad Gay had taken off. I see what you did there. I caught it. I caught it. You said yeah. Enola Gaywad. The yeah. Enola. I would go with Lord. Because yeah. that's a, it's like a sort of a homophobic slur, but you incorporated into the, I think, it, into the plane name. <laughs> so it's 2.45 a.m. on August 6, 1945. So this is early morning. Yeah. The Enola Gay had a crew of five. It was a B-29 bomber, and it had taken off from the Tinian Island uh, over 1,000 miles away. And unfortunately for Yamaguchi, for 29-year-old Yamaguchi, it is bound 
for Hiroshima, and it's carrying an overweight passenger by the name of Little Boy. And unfortunately, this wasn't just some obese American child. It was the first atomic bomb that would ever be used in history. And uh, what many will argue what initially got the aliens interested in us. I'd agree with that notion. Me too. Because it seems like we don't start really seeing or hearing from them until we discovered how to split the atom. That's when they were like, okay. I'd agree. I'd agree. I'll say real quick, Kent, I think we talked about this. I think the UFOs are probes uh, from what I've, my research on UFOs and stuff. I feel like they're um, drones. Yes, I would agree with that. There's not... Mm-hmm. They're checking us Because if they've got that kind of technology, then they have no reason to ha- to be required to be inside those things. There would be no reason. It would be such a safety issue, and if it's not one that you have to take. And if their drones are that big, imagine how large they may be. That's a good point. That's something I hadn't thought about, to be honest. That makes aliens terrifying because our drones are little bitty. I've always felt like if we had allowed Adam to split from Eve, we would never have been here. <laughs> so I'm kind of glad so me and Jack, Jack, me and you, we'll stick to science. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, it's eight fifteen in the morning on August sixth. Yamaguchi was <laughs> Yamaguchi was rushing back to Mitsubishi in Hiroshima. So eight fifteen in the morning, he it's his last day. Yamaguchi is he's frantically hurrying back to Mitsubishi in Hiroshima to retrieve his honko. And all that is is a it's a personalized stamp that they would use to sign documents. He was kind of, you know, a little bit important by this point, so he probably had to sign a lot of these engineering documents on the designs for these oil tankers. His colleagues were his colleagues were waiting for him at the train station to Kyusha Island, his hometown. So he was in a hurry. While walking through the Mitsubishi shipyard to go retrieve his Hanko, and I'm sure that I'm saying that super inbred. I'm almost Sounds certain that it's probably not Heinko. It's spelled H-A-N-K-O, so I'd almost guarantee it's not Heinko. Yeah, well, probably yeah. like I think that's right. Hanko. 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 Yep. Hanko. Good. So while walking through this Mitsubishi shipyard, Yamaguchi hears a buzz, a buzz noise, and looks overhead, looks skyward, and it's there that he spots an American plane soaring overhead like a giant metal bald eagle of death. When he's looking at this giant metal eagle, it makes a little poop, and he watches with curiosity as uh, it seems like the little poop had a parachute attached to it, and Yamaguchi would soon realize that this was the most uh, devastating poop taken in history by any any giant metal bird. And that was that bird was a B twenty nine bomber, and the the little poop was actually the the atom bomb. Suddenly. The sky erupts in an extremely bright light. And to let you know how bright this light was, uh, many sources will tell you that on this day in, in Japan, it was a bright, beautiful day out. So there wasn't a lot of cloud coverage. Um, and for something to be bright enough to where it blinds you in the middle of the day, that, that boy, that's bright. Um, mm. Yeah. As soon as the sky lit up, Yamaguchi dives into a nearby ditch and covers his head. Seconds later, the ear-splitting, deafening boom passes over him, and the shockwave that follows, seconds later, sucks him out from the ditch, spins him like a fidget spinner in the middle of the air, or dreidel, like a little Japanese dreidel in the middle of the air, a little flesh dreidel, 
and flings him into a nearby potato patch. And that's probably the best bet, the best vegetable to land in, honestly. Cornstalk leaves are like razor blades. They'll cut you all up. And a potato, very versatile vegetable. Good vegetable. The Irish yeah. are thankful for it. Kept their oh, yeah. redheads alive on many occasions. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. Yamaguchi was 1.86 miles from the ground zero, which is really close to an atomic bomb. That's insanely close. That's how close I was to Columbine when it happened. Was it really? Yeah, about that. Yeah, tragedy does seem to follow you. Yeah. I think we talked about that on the last episode. It does. Weird. Now, when yeah. Yamaguchi... That's how we met. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we continue to meet. So whenever he landed in this potato patch, he was knocked unconscious. And when Yamaguchi woke a few minutes later, he was temporarily blinded. His face and forearms were burnt. His eardrums were ruptured. His face was bad. His face was badly burnt. The sky was black with ash and dust. Uh, probably looked. I would imagine what the world looked like after the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs hit. Probably, it's at this point in time though that he notices the huge mushroom cloud in the sky that's just kind of hovering over him, uh, with what little vision he has left in his eyes. Uh, He stands up and wanders in a daze through what little remained of the Mitsubishi shipyard, like Rick Grimes after waking up from his coma in The Walking Dead, only with more destruction. So he's just kind of probably confused. He's hurt. He's half blind. He's half deaf. And everything is dead and everything is destroyed. He just kind of stumbles around the city amongst this wreckage of debris and chaos and a foggy state of confusion until he comes across an air raid shelter, and that's where he spends the night. It had been a very long day. He had very had a very busy Monday. Bad bad Monday. That's a the bad Monday. Bad Monday. <laughs> bad case of the bad Mondays. case of the Mondays. Now he woke up that Tuesday morning in that air raid shelter. This is August seventh now, feeling refreshed. He was still badly injured and burned, but he had to be at work on the ninth. So getting home was priority. This guy's still worried about getting to work on the ninth. That's his number one priority, and he goes through hell to get there. He goes th- hardworking people. Hard, they are very hardworking. It's honorable. He has just been in a, in a literal atomic explosion. Probably got doused with enough radiation to turn him into Thanos, and he is still concerned about getting to work on the ninth. It's the seventh. He's got two days to get home. This sounds like a a rom com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yamaguchi starts making his way towards the train station, or where he knew it used to be. And when he gets there, he is absolutely shocked to discover that it's still somehow operating. The trains the trains are still running. They've cleared debris off the tracks the best they can, and you still can get to certain parts of Japan by train. On his way to the train station, he passes hundreds upon hundreds of mangled, burned, and charred corpses, his ears still ringing, his vision still blurry. At one point, he had to swim across a river full of floating dead bodies because of all the bridges had been destroyed. This is a really bad Tuesday. It's not a good Tuesday. It's the worst day of the week, honestly, if you're asking me. Uh, It's not halfway to the weekend yet. You're still trying to get the taste of the Monday out of your mouth that he had just had the day before. It's a bad Tuesday. I think we can all relate. Could you imagine if they made a children's book about this, but it was illustrated kind of like the... 
the where the wild things are illustrations and the, you know there's this charred corpses man. hanging from trees yeah charred yeah. man in a ditch and he's just sitting there like mm, and it's like Wong Su was having terrible no good very <laughs> bad <laughs> I'd read that book. Anyways, upon reaching the train station, he boards a train full of burned and bewildered passengers and settles in for the overnight ride to his home of Kayusha Island, where his wife and small son were eagerly awaiting his return. When he arrives to Kayusha Island on August 8th, he knows he's got to be at work on the 9th, but he, 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 he kind of sissies out and goes to the hospital Wuss. to have all his wounds from the atomic blast treated. This guy's been through a lot. Very busy Monday and Tuesday. He went to so he went to school with the doctor that was treating him, right? The doctor didn't recognize him because the burns on his hands and face were so bad. He didn't even know who he was. Oh, jeez. After he gets bandaged up, he returns home to his wife and child from the hospital, but his family didn't recognize him either and his mother who was there visiting accused him of being a ghost. And now we're on a very, it's the start of a very, very frustrating Wednesday. So this guy's having a bad week. The worst, worst Wednesday ever. Hump day, though. Yamaguchi has to be at work tomorrow, though. So he spent the evening with his family and then turned in early so he could be up for work in the morning. Got to work. He's just looking for, just looking for Saturday at this point. He's looking for the weekend. Everybody's looking for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. Despite being on the verge of collapse... Probably near death, Yamaguchi drags himself out of bed on the morning of August 9th and reports for work at the Mitsubishi office there on Kayusha Island. Uh, one other thing, guys, uh, it's August 9th. One other thing that I forgot to mention, this city in Kayusha Island that Yamaguchi had been born in, just now returned to, worked in, and lived in, was also called Nagasaki. Oh, my Ugh. gosh. Uh, this oh. is, is this a brutal? We're not, we're not doing a brutal, are we? <laughs> At the Mitsubishi office there in Nagasaki, the bosses were really giving Yamaguchi a lot of poop for, I know we're not cursing, try not to curse, a lot of, a lot of poop for, for showing up looking unprofessional and being tired. He didn't want to tell him he'd had a long week. And at 11 a.m., he finds himself in a meeting with his superiors explaining himself. He describes to them what had happened in Hiroshima. He says, no, you don't understand. One bomb destroyed all of Hiroshima. It doesn't exist anymore. The news hadn't reached Nagasaki yet of what had happened. So this was all news to them, and they didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy, and at one point, one of his superiors says, one bomb cannot destroy an entire city. Right as Yamaguchi began to retort to that statement, the entire room of the office lit up with a bright light. And the windows facing out, sir, outside were absolutely blinding. Now, Yamaguchi, he's already, he's been through this charade before. He immediately hits the ground and covers himself. Later, he would be quoted as saying, I thought the mushroom cloud from Hiroshima had followed me. So he's like, oh, it's the same bomb. It's got a some kind of personal vendetta. Wow. I guess <laughs> it's came back. <laughs> Well, why do the Americans have a problem with me? Just design ships? The atom bomb that hit Nagasaki was even more powerful than the one that hit Hiroshima, and it had been named Fat Man, which would not go and uh, 
the politically correct military now. They would be like... They're going to have to apologize for that at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And not for the 100,000 deaths that happened between Nagasaki and Hiroshima together. It was like 100, I think 39,000 in in Hiroshima and 68,000 in Nagasaki, something like that. There's still shadows all across those places, so the bodies are just... Shadows were burnt into the ground. Yes. Mm -hmm. And people that were uh, within a certain distance of ground zero were just vaporized. Like, literally, they just stopped existing. Crazy. So, Yamaguchi would later learn that the city's hilly landscape and a reinforced stairwell had combined to, to muffle the blast inside the office for the most part. His bandages from Hiroshima were blown off in the explosion, and he was yet by, hit by yet another surge of cancer-causing radiation, but he did emerge relatively unhurt. Uh, for the second time in three days, he'd had the misfortune of being involved with the only two nuclear explosions that had ever happened in the existence of humanity. Jeez. It was a Thursday, though. One more day till the weekend. He needed Frayne Selak there with him. He would have. Well, actually, he had some Frayne Selak vibes. It's funny how these things are kind of because he's the luckiest, unluckiest man. Yeah. In Japan at this point, right? Now, after fleeing from the skeleton of the Mitsubishi building, Yamaguchi rushed home through bomb-ravaged Nagasaki. It looked just like Hiroshima to check on his wife and son. He feared the worst when he saw that his house had been reduced to rubble. But he soon found out that both had sustained only superficial injuries because his wife had been out with the child looking for burn ointment for the burns that he had received from Hiroshima and was out and about in town when the explosion came. And when she saw the light, she, she seeked refuge in a tunnel. Interesting how he comes home and grandma doesn't seem to have a problem with their superstition injuries, but he's a ghost, so he's got to go. Yeah. I don't, she seems racist. Also interesting how in this situation, I'm sure there'd be the type of people around you saying, hey, everything happens for a reason, you know, like uh, things kind of lined up for you that day. Uh, what about the hundreds of thousands of other people that freaking turn to dust yeah. around you, though? This guy's just very, very lucky. Even better, let's just not have this happen. Yeah. I could have yeah. just came home. Could have just came home from work. And... Should have left Pearl Harbor alone, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon, maybe? I always like to think that whenever we dropped this bomb on Nagasaki, J- Japan officials were like, All right! We get it! <laughs> we'll stop doing war things. Swears. Jesus Christ. Swearing. Christ. Fun fact to know and share. I've got one. Um, do you know what stopped the war with Japan? I believe it was Hiroshima. It was <laughs> Actually, no. So we dropped the bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Then, uh, uh, point of note, do you know what all the houses were made out of in, in Japan everywhere? Haystacks. Wood. Do you know what the windows and doors, windows and doors were made out of? Wood. Wax paper. So what ended the war was actually after we dropped those bombs, we proceeded to firebomb town after town after town after town. And the, the, the way the Japanese government had established the, 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 the tone with the people is they were not going to leave. They would stand their ground because they were all ready to defend 
against American armies showing up in their towns. But instead of showing up, we just started firebombing these towns. And because they're basically made out of, I don't know, they're all Barbie houses, the whole town would just go up like a matchstick. So we we firebombed so much stuff that they were finally like, okay, fine, fine. And everything is flammable. Yeah, people, clothes, houses, windows. One of the uh, cadences, this is going to probably butthurt some people, but you know how you do cadences when you're running in the military? Yeah. One of the cadences that we used to sing, because a cadence is designed to keep you in step when you're running, right? Bop, 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 bop. Right. One of the one of the one of the verses from one of the cadences that we used to have to sing all the time was napalm sticks to kids. Oh my. It sticks to their face and sticks to their ribs. And <laughs> <laughs> oh. wow, that's terrible. Oof. Miss those days. That is a K-pop song now. So Yamaguchi's wife, like I said, had been out with with their their youngin trying to fetch a burn ointment for her son from Hiroshima uh, when when the bomb went off. She took refuge in a tunnel and was unfa- unharmed. So it could be argued that without Hiroshima, his wife would and son would both be dead. Yeah. Um, seems like a lot <laughs> to sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> Jack, you, you know what's... I just got to comment on this because I, I just find it so magical have you noticed, like, Kent can literally use a word that isn't a word, but because he says it, it's it's right. It sounds like, you know, like when your kid is like, they call their, instead of calling their fingers fingers, they'd call them fingers. Or my son used to say laster day. And you're like, well, it kind of is adorable. Also, it kind of makes sense. So you don't correct them. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Kent said that his his wife and Sook refuge. Yeah. Sook isn't a word. Yeah. But it yeah. sounds right. Can't- well, they had to find somewhere they couldn't get in the water because they'd have drowned. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, oh. he remembers. It hurts. Oh. oh, Kent, I love you so much. Now, the good news is here, the hug here is that the Yamaguchi, Yamaguchi and his family went on to live long, healthy lives. They, he recovered from his wounds. Um, he would eventually return to work designing oil tankers for Mitsubishi. Him and his wife would go on to have two daughters in the 1950s that were also big, healthy girls. Not like overweight. That is big. Yeah. They were normal weight girls. Right. Just, uh, they had a big, beautiful family. They all lived healthy, long lives. Uh, Yama, t- Tutsomo Yamaguchi actually uh, lived until January 4, 2010, when he died of stomach cancer at the age of 93 years old. And some people are like, what is that related? Uh, I mean, even if it, it was 93 years old. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're probably going to get some form of cancer, regardless of radiation exposure at 93 years old. I will say this, though. January 4, 2010 was a Monday. Oof. Oh, cool. I like that. I would have named this a bad case of the Mondays, but no, you, you did well, man. That was awesome. That was amazing. And that's my story. I like it. Oh, now I'm getting it. Now when you said there's a lot of light. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and you know, I was – we took a little break there and the, and the audience didn't hear this, but I also wanted to go into kind of like the Manhattan Project and, and the war itself and everything, but for time purposes, I had to kind of shimmy it down to that story, so. 
That might be a fun TCK to do sometime. True crime can't. It would. The Manhattan Project? Yeah. Absolutely. Which uh, project in Manhattan are you talking about in particular? The, the, the <laughs> library that's chock full of history there. The main library. Yeah, I was talking about the library. The library there in okay. Manhattan. Yeah, man, let's do that one. It is so cool. It's rife with drama. History. history. Mm-hmm. Anyway, hey, okay, I'll, I'll tell you my story. I have a question for you both. Gentlemen, have you ever solved a crime? Mm, I don't think that I have. I mean, there's been small things where I figured out that somebody was lying, and I was like, oh, I don't know, this guy's trying to misdirect us, and I think that he really has something to do with this particular small situation we were dealing with, but not an outright crime. No. What about you, Kent? I don't. I tried really hard one time on my second deployment. We actually had the luxury of porta-potties, which was a big step up. Mm. And somebody uh, we called the poop bandit uh, would go into the porta potties under the cover of night, and they would poop on the lid of the porta potty instead of opening it. And um, that was what we considered a hate crime. Yeah, and it was happening a lot, and it really got the higher ups in a in a in a fuzzy. And at one point, they put guards on the porta potties to stop the poop bandit from striking again under the cover of night. And uh, he was never brought to justice. But I, I, I devoted a lot of my time to trying to figure out who was making the poops on the, on the toilet lids and the porta potties, and he was never apprehended. Um, so he's still running around free in the United States to this day. No doubt. I, I uh, you just reminded me of one that I think I solved too, but I didn't tell anybody that I'd solved it. I worked at a group home, and it was all women that worked there, except for me and this other guy. And when we go to lift the seat, there was always pee like all over the underside of the seat. And we're like, how? Who's what? Like, how's there pee all over the underside of this? Must have weird-looking genitals, whoever's doing that. <laughs> a lot of right angles. Yeah. But we realized that maybe it, was some of the lar- maybe it was some of the larger girls that worked there peeing, and they pee so all over the underside of the seat. And the- or so skinny that, like, their body just flops around like a fire hose that's out of control. <laughs> like that wild, wacky man that's in front of car dealerships? yeah. yeah. <laughs> the funny thing about it was that they would have never noticed because women don't lift the seat. But for guys, when you lift the seat, sometimes you'll see a bunch of pee underneath there. And for us, we would be gone for like a week, and then we come back. We work a week on, week off. We come back and be caked Ugh. with pee. I'm like what is going on? Oh, because we work with all women. There's a lot of body function huh. bandits out there. I'm realizing now. Yeah, Kent. Uh, I was going to yeah. say you 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 missed a great opportunity there to title to give that criminal the name. The indigestion insurgent. Yep. <laughs> Fun. Fun times. Yeah, huge missed opportunity. Yeah, missed. We, yeah. You know, we could always go back. Who knows? You might go back. <laughs> Awkward pause. No, I think I'm, I'll just let it be unsolved. Okay. I'm good. Kent, Especially uh, now. Jack, was yours ever solved? Did you ever figure out who was the... Uh... It was all of them. It was all of them, and I decided not to bring it up because women are sensitive about such things. I yeah, feel. it's best whenever you whenever you have one woman in your sight, just blame it on all of them because that's a safe approach. I did have a girl come up to me one time and whisper, "Hey, toilets plugged," <laughs> and I I did it, and I don't. I'm sorry, but I can't get it unplugged. And so I went and I did it. Do you guys know the real secret to really unplugging a toilet? It's not just just using the plunger, you gotta 
you got to have the cojones to flush that toilet. It could overflow, but then you start walka, walka, walking it. Like you really go at it while it's flushing and then it'll drain that. There's a high possibility you're going to get some in your mouth. Are you talking about when you walka, 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 you're talking about flushing it and then using the plunger to just walka, walka, walka really quick? Yeah. Okay. Because you were making a hand gesture like you were using your hands to do it and... Oh. Done that too, but <laughs> okay, talking about right. the plunger. I was gonna say more, more, uh, more evidence that uh, we've invited a homeless person onto the Hugs podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Um, I personally have not ever solved the crime. The closest I got was when I first started the nine one one calls podcast with the with the operator with Jack. Uh, that's a weird long. La- that's why I didn't put Jack in the title because that would have just been too long. Nine one one calls. <laughs> podcast with the operator plus jack nah doesn't <laughs> doesn't land um i was working on a case about drowning and i came across really conflicting information the news had had this one answer and they just kind of buttoned up the case they're like oh this was just a accidental car that went in the water i had these 911 call audios from another it was in the exact location and everything and it was a gentleman who said he made it out of a car and that everybody else drowned. And I thought for sure I was onto something because none of the news media had mentioned this guy that had gotten out of the car. And then I thought, oh, this is, you know, I'm cracking this one wide open because this 911 call has this guy, you know, saying he made it out of the car. Anyway, I reached out to the family of the bereaved, the bereaved, you know, the 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 family of the the deceased. I'm like, hey, I think I've got some more answers for you. And I gave them the audio and everything. And they were really excited. They were like, oh, my goodness, this might just bring us closure. We were always wondering. The people that died in the car were like staples of the community and everything. And it just seemed to the news and to the people that were just dishing it off that it was just a a case of, you know, a couple people leaving the bar drunk and drove off the road into the river. But they were always like, we just don't believe it. You know, I was like, yeah, well, my 911 call audio proves otherwise. And so I was really, really going down this angle. And and then I did some more investigation and found that it was uh, the, the same location, but just about a mile down the road where this other car had gone off and this guy had made it out. And so I just about put somebody in jail. Oh. Or... Yeah, yeah. Then I remember I re- that. Rem- then I th- at that point I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta make sure my research is solid before I start. Otherwise, I look like a Marvel character that's trying to beat the alien, but the rest of the city gets knocked down. You know, we've been over that already. Did you explain to the family beforehand that you're a podcast host and they should take you seriously? I did tell them that I was a podcast host, and I also said because of that that I might have unique insight into a lot of the things that police <laughs> might miss. Also. Full full disclosure, I have not reached back out to that family to let them know that I screwed up. So. Oh, and tell them to sign up for Tier 13. <laughs> where? <laughs> so I'm trying to make up with, with good shows like the Hugs podcast. Uh, I would say that Jack did solve a crime in a way with his episode from Dark Topic of the leg thing. Yeah, I would agree yeah. with that. The Baraboo. In Baraboo, Wisconsin. That was paranormal forces, influences affecting that young man. When I made that connection, 
Man, my whole body went like in chills when I first made that connection because when I was looking at the pictures, I mean, the, the legs of the leg thing, it's an ancient, for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, there's a man mound in Baraboo, Wisconsin with these legs on it and they painted the road because they ruined it and they painted the road white where the legs would have been and it looks like casts on this thing. And in the case I was covering, the guy was a bone breaker and he was breaking kids' legs and they obviously ended up with casts on their legs. It was almost, there was a real connection there. So, yeah, it freaked that would me be out. a great movie, it like a be. Stanley Kubrick a documentary, yeah, kind, kind of movie. Feels like something that mm-hmm. I I don't know. I just have Nickelodeon, uh, so I don't really know if it'd be a good movie or not. But hey, okay, here's my story. <clears throat> you guys ready for this one? Cue the music. I want to take you back to Turin, Italy. Have you ever heard of Turin, Italy? Turin. No. Bet you have though. Have you ever seen that picture of that ghostly ancient tapestry with the imprint of Jesus's face? They say. Oh yeah, the shroud, yeah. the shroud, shroud of Turin. Turin. Yeah. No, so that that's uh, currently housed there. The, uh, pretty much, it's been debunked at this point. Actually, it was debunked all the way back in the 1300s. But anyway, I digress. That's that's Turin. That's Turin, Italy. So this is the story of perhaps the greatest Italian detective of all time. During his crime-fighting career, which spanned several years, he was given recognition for recovering 136 missing persons and had taken it upon himself to solve the backlog of unsolved cases from around Europe. He ended up closing 171 unsolved cases and helped to capture a record of 536 criminals, including assassins and kidnappers. He was a founding member of what they called the Rome Anti-Crime Squad, and during his time in the field, he was wounded in action seven times. Similar to our podcast here, he was also awarded with many, many awards, having been decorated in awards officially 38 times. Of course, he never received as many emojis, likes, and comments as we have received here on this show, so I think we're still ahead by a bit. At the end of his life, he pulled a very common move and he died. Rome's citizens, who had grown up under his protection and leadership, were so saddened by his loss that they turned his grave into a shrine. But they went one step further and even preserved his house as a law enforcement shrine. The demand to recognize him for his accomplishments in keeping Rome's streets safe was so high that they hired his son, who played in a movie about his father and all of his harrowing crime captures. Now, he wasn't just a hero to the people, though. He was actually seen as several cuts above the rest in the police force. He was kind of a detective that showed up to the scene and, due to his high intelligence, could solve the case within a matter of minutes oftentimes. He found clues that others often overlooked. Physically, also, he was even stronger than everyone on the force. His physical prowess was set as a standard, actually, in the athleticism for officers in training. Kent, you can probably relate a bit with this. You know, you you all have that example that goes through boot camp who just seems to excel beyond all the rest, the, the true G.I. Joe kind, right? Was that someone you knew or was that you maybe? Yeah, my best friend, Canty, Joe Canty. I'll put him on blast. Joe? Wait, Joe is in... You know Joe. Joe is in Helicopter Joe? Helicopter Joe. He was the model recruit in at Paris Island. The whole t- he was our guide. He was the top recruit 
graduated in dress blues while the rest of us were chucks. Yeah, and then he was the model student at infantry school, and then he graduated through the ranks quickly, and now he's flying helicopters. Apaches. Apaches. Man, Joe's my hero. All you had to say was Joe, and I knew exactly who you were talking about. Captain America. That's what me and my family call him. Maybe we'll have him on the show sometime. Again? Yeah, because not only does he have fun things to talk about, he's also beautiful. So I like, you know. He is beautiful, He's just a handsome man. Great jawline. He does. Very, very rich. And it seems to be pronounced the more whiskey he drinks. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. One time there was a crime scene where a couple had killed one another in a suicide pact and left a note. The case was closed by the police department, seeing as how the note summed up the evidence on the scene, obviously, but this detective wasn't convinced and searched the scene for more clues. He discovered a bullet fragment that was lodged in a wall, and when the angle and ballistics were calculated, they determined that, in fact, it was a murder. The case was reopened and the murderer was caught. Okay, in another incident, a child had gone missing and all the efforts to locate him had come up empty. Our super detective was called out from his own police district to another to try and solve the case, seeing as how time was of the essence. The family and the investigators on scene had resolved that the child had been kidnapped by some questionable family member. One in particular had a very long and sorted rap sheet. They really feared that this child was dead because of the comments of the criminal family member earlier that day. Also, the suspect was nowhere to be found. Our detective quickly picked up on the clues in the residence. He found some food on the ground and on the table and some odd torn paper and a piece of rope laying in the hallway. And he continued to scour the house and follow the clues. He suggested at one point that the homeowners open up the attic door in the ceiling and there they found the child sleeping, dusty and tear-streaked from being stuck up there for hours, but nonetheless, he was safe. He'd gone up there to hide after hearing this criminal family member speak about his threats earlier that day, and then he got stuck up there. So our super detective, with so much awards, still trailing us by a bit, but so much awards for a detective, was reaching retirement. In reality, he had already started his retirement papers when one more case caught his attention. An American colonel, which is also an American colonel, but it reads colonel, had been brutally murdered in one of Rome's tourist attractions. He was called to the scene, and based on the method of murder and the exact place that it took place, he had a hunch. The crowd was still gathered thick around the scene and seemed to be growing by the minute. He was convinced, though, that the suspect was still in the area. So he slipped away while the other officers handled the scene and began watching the people in the crowd. He made his way through the crowd slowly, looking for signs, and he noticed a man standing very, very still in the crowd. His eyes were fixed on the scene. And he had one hand in his pocket that he didn't seem to want to remove. He was so reluctant, in fact, to remove his hand that he even kept it in his coat pocket when he went to wipe his brow. This move not only seemed really odd to the detective, but the movement also revealed blood on his arm sleeve. The detective apprehended the man on the spot and he was taken to the precinct after other officers helped to subdue him. 
This detective, larger than most and smarter than any, affectionately named Docs by his colleagues, knew no fear. He just didn't hand off the dirty work of the job catching criminals to those rookies like other seasoned detectives would. He earned his stripes the hard way through example. He had outdone the finest criminologists in Europe, taking on the cases that they abandoned and solving them with an amazing amount of ease. Italy's greatest detective, Docs, was originally born in Germany, but adopted his beloved home in Rome. The child of lowly shepherd parents, Docs died at the ripe old age of 19. Docs stands immortalized by a 10-foot bronze statue at his gravesite, a larger-than-life likeness of him, a 10-foot-tall statue of Docs, the German shepherd. Oh, nice. It was a dog? It was a dog. The whole time? The whole time. (laughs) Like it didn't start out as a human? No, he started out as a dog and ended as a dog. That was a good twist. Did I blow your minds? Yeah, I like that. That was a good twist. I liked that. That's my favorite story you've brought. Thank you. Yeah, I was like, is Sherlock Holmes Italian? (laughs) I thought it was going to be Sherlock Holmes. I did too. That's what I was, I was thinking that, or H.H. Holmes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you catch that part where I said, Docs was originally born in Germany, the child of lowly shepherd parents. Oh. (laughs) It was right there the whole time. All time, the whole time. Well, I was going to start that story because when I first read the story, there was actually some confusion on whether Docs was actually male or female. Turns out he was male, but I was going to start this story with the greatest detective in Italy was a bitch. Swear. (laughs) Because that's the only time I could swear it actually worked. I'm going to have to edit that out, by the way, but people might just catch on to what I'm talking about. I was mentioning a female dog, just in case you were wondering. Anyway, I apologize. Uh, Just more edits for me to do. Hey, okay, well, that is three shiny stories. I think we've all really brought our personalities out in these stories, each one of us sharing a little bit of the light and love inside of us. Kent, through his channeling a Japanese man, Jack telling his story. Jack, no, I'm really proud. I, I liked that. I liked your story this time. I thought it was really good. I did. I really did. Thank you. Hey, how about a hug drawer? Anybody got hug drawer stuff? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. I've been listening to a podcast, and I've tried to share it as much as I can on Facebook, wherever I can, just telling people about it. And I think it's getting popularity now, as it does deserve it. It was going to happen naturally, but I was on it from the very beginning. When Sammy the Bull Gravano got out of prison, I paid close attention. I, I'm a big mafia buff. Sammy the Bulgarvano was uh, second to uh, John Gotti, and uh, he's widely known as Sammy the Rat. Really, the, the, the situation was that John Gotti was a real piece of a poop, and um, he was forced. Sammy was forced to turn on him or else it would have happened to him as well. And a lot of what happened is explained on his new podcast called Our Thing. It's also a YouTube channel that he does, and if you, he's so, such a good storyteller. Uh, really well done on YouTube, but also the podcast itself. He goes, he's on his second season now. And if you're interested in anything historical when it comes to the mafia, Sammy the Bulgarvana's our thing. He gets into it. And I mean, I think he's ratting people out <laughs> still <laughs> with, by the way he's talking about them, but a lot of them are long dead. And um, 
man, I'm really enjoying it. There's certain guys that I'll listen to, and I think it replaces maybe father figure stuff in my life or whatever, where he's just so full of wisdom. And even though he comes from a really dark and bad place or whatever, there's certain things he says that really stick with you if you're looking for inspiration. Uh, even in the most unlikely of places, it comes with this podcast, Our Thing. Check it out, please. It's You won't regret you know, it. Forget about it. You know what I really like about that podcast? And I find this with people. There, There is a swath of people where we gravitate to these people. They've figured things out for themselves. They're not translating somebody else's knowledge or belief or anything like that. Yeah. And what happens when that that occurs, when we start speaking from our own knowledge base, knowledge set, is the the responses we give to things are very simple. They're always very straightforward and they don't take a lot of flowery speech or and that's him, man. That guy is so yeah. to the point. It's a I just love it. It's like ear candy in my earball. Thank I you, love man. That guy. You've been listening then. Can I give you can I give you guys one? I write down some of his quotes. Okay. So this he didn't say this exactly, but this is the advice that I took from him. He said something along the lines of never negotiate with what you've done. Focus on what you will do. Mm. Oftentimes when you're in negotiations, you talk a lot about what you've already done and the person you're negotiating with doesn't give a they don't care about what it is you've done. What can you do for them? And he really pushes that. Like just if you're ever in a negotiative situation, talk about what you will do. Never talk about what you've done. It's you're wasting your breath, right? I like that a lot. I like that. I could learn from that. I have a tendency to to pitter-patter, skitter-scatter all day long doing a bunch of things. And then people will be like, hey, what uh, what are you even working on? And then I feel like I have to explain everything I've been doing. But to your point, if I were more right. clear and direct with what I'm doing or going to do, that define that should at least define what I have been doing too, you know? We all do it up. We all do it. The kinder of us who promise things like often like times will happen with you, right? Like you want to help everybody out and you show them what you've done in the past and it's almost proof of what you can do for them in the future. Um, and maybe it happens more with you than say the regular everyday person who's not as generous as you are. Um, I, uh, yeah, I've, I've found myself even in as low, like say a job, you know, you're going for a job talking about what you will do. I think you'd be much better off and you would be much more memorable to say, this is what I can bring to this company rather than what I've done in the past. Actually in a job interview, if you talk about all the things that you have done, You'll turn them off because they're like, this guy thinks that he's going to come in here and run this thing, and we don't need a pain in the ass coming into this company. We need someone who's teachable. And if you talk about what you think that you're po- able to possibly do for them, given the construct of wh- where you're getting into, you're much more likely to get that job, I think, than showing off what you've done in the I past. really like that. I, you think about it. I've been in a position where I've hired a lot of employees. And when I think about the ones where I've hired them and they've told me all the stuff they have been doing – the number one question that gets generated in my mind is, why did you stop doing that? Or why did you leave that job? And right. they're, so they're building more questions than they are answers. Mm-hmm. But if they came in, and I've had this happen where they're proactive, they've, they've been observant of my company or my, you know, whatever I'm doing enough that they come in and they're like, hey, let me tell you a couple things I would do off the bat 
that is an awesome conversation to have yeah. as opposed to us, oh, it's great. Know, meandering down a road of, of former employment that they had. Good point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Terrible advice if you're the defendant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got it from Sammy the Bull, so <laughs> yeah. Man. Uh, what about you, Kent? Anything? Um, I got a, a movie. It doesn't need my help because it's done exceptionally well, but uh, a, a friend of mine by the name of Vincent DeSanti directed a – in the beginning, it was a Friday the 13th fan film in 2017, released it on YouTube. It's almost feature length. It's 56 minutes. It's called Never Hike Alone, and uh, it's pretty much been embraced by the Friday the 13th uh, community as now canon to the films themselves. That's how good it is. And uh, everybody just kind of – when they're ranking the films, people that are really into Friday the 13th kind of put Never Hike Alone in there as well um, because that's how good a job he did. It has its own IMDb. You can buy it on Blu-ray and DVD now and everything. That's how well it performed. So uh, you can watch that for free on YouTube, Never Hike Alone by Vincent DeSanti. Um, Andrew Leahy, the the main actor uh, in the film, had a few beers with those guys. They're great guys, and uh, it's made by a company called Womp Stomp Films. Uh, great movie, great group of guys. Uh, can't say enough good things about it. Check it out. Did you guys watch Bates Motel? No. The, My wife oh, did. Man. I couldn't get into it. Well, you got to give it time. It's 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 really good. But when you said if it was Jason and his mother Pamela, that reminds me of maybe what that kind of would have been like, except for like really, you know, more horrific. Yeah. So it's a, oh, it's a TV series. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good, man. It's got the kid in The Sixth Sense. He was the kid from The Sixth Sense, and then he plays an autistic doctor. Haley Joe Osment? Freddie Highmore, the, Freddie the kid Highmore. that plays the autistic doctor in that one TV show about a, a doctor that's autistic. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you know, that's I think that's who you're uh, talking about, Freddie Highmore, right? Yeah, I might have got the wrong movie, Six Sense. I'll, I'll double-check it while you talk no, about it. Yeah, he was in Charlie Chocolate Factory. That's it. Yeah, that's that it. Kid. It wasn't Sixth Sense. Uh, Kent actually got the right name on that. Sorry, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Kid is the kid who plays uh, Norman Bates. Very different Bates movie. Yeah. <laughs> you were both right, and then I somehow figured out who you were both talking about and found another kid. So we should start like a kid thing where we find kids. Oh, t- totally, man. Yeah. I mean, that's what I've been trying to get you guys into, but you seem to be against it. It's called Kid Hunter. Jack has been talking about dropping podcasts entirely for a year and getting into that game. He calls it. He keeps calling it the game. Okay, <laughs> that's why his van just says the game van on the side. Okay, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. speaking of vans, a little while ago, a couple episodes ago, we mentioned uh, Jack. You mentioned a strange thing, and they have a van. Yeah. And they have motorcycles, and they travel around, and they have a podcast. Well, I got a message from them after we mentioned them during the hug drawer, and it said. Hey, operator. They used my real name, sorry. They said, hey, the operator. (laughs) Quick update. Over the last three days, we've seen an additional 800 listens to a strange thing. That's over a 1,000% increase. So I teared up a little because you and I both know how amazing the show is that they saw 800 more people come and listen to it, and that was a 1,000% increase. I really want them to succeed. This is, you know what? If we could merge all the things that we want to succeed together, 
It would be like we create a little tiny think tank company and a strange thing podcast is in it. Jason Vukovic is there doing something. You know, we just start collecting all these really cool stuff. Anyway, so they, we got a message yeah. from them. I would call that an award, uh, really. So one more award for us. Uh, Strange Things says thank you. And I just want to shout out a book I've been reading where by page three, I felt like I was I had a doctorate in Russian social studies. The book is called Through the Eyes of the Enemy, Russia's highest-ranking military defector reveals why Russia is more dangerous than ever. Once again, I think one of you said it when you were talking. You can't judge a whole people by, you know, a couple bad actors. And I, I kind of— fe- Nobody feels like that here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's say we do, just for a moment so it makes sense. <laughs> I feel like the Russian people are are good. The Russians that I've met, I I really like them. Our governments have conflict. I I would say that's the best way to put it. But here's what's crazy is this book's title is also eight miles long. But Russia's highest-ranking military defector reveals why Russia is more dangerous than ever. Written in 1998. (laughs) So, but it is an eye-opener. This is the the highest-ranking military defector ever wrote a book. And it's a page turner. Man, it's got everything. It's got people. It's got words. It's lacking pictures, but it's got a lot of dense words. Foreign topics. It's, you know, check it out. If you like hardback books, out. by the way, because it's not on audiobook or soft cover, you can only get it as a hardback book. But it gives you something to brag oh, about. That's all that existed when it was written. That's right. Yeah, I have one thing uh, because it is such a poor job of hugs. I got something that actually teared me up that I want to play for you guys. It actually made me cry. <laughs> there's a there's a YouTube guy. His name is Doctor Disrespect, and I think he's like on Twitch and stuff too. He just wears like a long black mullet, and he plays video games, and he's he's really disrespectful to everybody he plays against. But he's got a big following, right? So actually, I won't play it for you because it might not come through. He's there with his headset on, he's got his glasses, and he's got his mullet, black mullet. And he's a kid comes onto his stream, and he goes, is this Dr. Disrespect? And he's like, no, 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 man, I'm just a big fan. I just try to look like I'm not him. And the guy's like, oh, okay. And then Dr. Disrespect, who it actually is, he goes, what do you think about Dr. Disrespect? And the kid goes, I love him. And then Dr. Disrespect goes, I don't know, man. I think that he's kind of annoying lately. Like, a lot of people have been crashing on him. I don't know, but I don't know about the guy. I think he's going downhill. And the kid goes, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I love that guy. I look up to him. Uh. And Dr. Disrespect, who's pretending not to be Dr. Disrespect, gets falls out of character and begins to, like, choke up. And he has to get up out of his chair and walk away. Really? Because the kid genuinely gave him something that he needed in that moment. He clearly was playing into, like, everybody was crashing on him, and this kid comes out of nowhere and validates him in a moment where he needed validation, man. Hey, let's uh, let's put that video on Patreon. We're going to post it to Patreon so everybody can see that interaction between a fan and, yep. and, Dr. Do- and Dr. Disrespect. I think that'd be cool. So we'll put that on Patreon. Go over to patreon.com forward slash 1159media to check that out and about one billion other things that we do there. Will you send me that link? Yeah. So stay tuned for being, being respected. respected. <laughs> so stay tuned for the next riveting episode, which will come out in whenever we want. It's our Never Daily Podcast. So yeah. uh, 
Love you guys. Okay. Oh, and just just to remind you, up this is exclusive Patreon content. So we will see you next month, right? We're doing one of these a month. We're hoping to be doing right. Oh yes, the reach around. Good point. This is the reach around. Yeah, the reach around episodes are Patreon exclusives. But yes, so stay tuned. Keep paying us your money so you can hear the next episode. <laughs> okay. Hugs. Hugs. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>